0: Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at Delap and leader of our Wealth Advisory Practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor. So be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. In this week's episode, we're gonna talk about the Net Promoter Score. The Net Promoter Score is a single, easy to understand metric that predicts the overall company growth and customer lifetime value. These powerful tools can help you earn the passionate loyalty of your customers while inspiring the energy, enthusiasm, and creativity of your employees. To take us along for this learning journey, we're gonna talk to Casey Corrigan, Casey's really passionate about helping businesses extract value from their data to improve their overall business results by serving their customers and developing their employees and contributing to society. If you're passionate about customer experience and doing what you can to engage your clients, you're going to love this week's conversation with Casey Corrigan. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Casey Corrigan, welcome to Success at Last. We're excited to have you today and even more excited to have a conversation around client experience and what that could mean to our respective businesses. So welcome. Thanks, Jared. Happy to be here. Awesome. Hey, I guess let's start by talking about how you kind of found yourself in this role of helping businesses better understand what client experience looks like. We all kind of have an origin story. So I'd love to uh, share your story with, uh, with our audience. What were some of the professional decisions that led you to this moment today?
1: Sure. So I've been in what we would call the, uh, the saas space, software as a service and data technology companies for about 15 years or so, starting back at one of Portland's original landmark tech companies, which is called WebTrends. It's kind yeah. of irrelevant these days, but WebTrends was pretty hot back in those days to help people understand how their customers were interacting with their marketing sites. And so all the companies I've been a part of have literally or essentially been data companies and the technology has always been really shiny and really cool. But what I really got switched on about is the the way that data, particularly feedback from your customers, your constituents, is so incredibly actionable. You know, we kind of tease sometimes internally how there's a lot of software companies that help other software companies to optimize to so then help their, them optimize more software. It's kind of this chasing end of software or chasing software. But what we see so much is that when we can really understand what makes a great experience, deliver it more consistently, to really listen and engage our customers, it has very tangible benefits. It's really actionable and it's a lot of fun. So that really attracted me to where I am today in in the company that I'm a part of, which is called Ask Nicely. So we did a lot of asking and we try to keep it nice. And so uh, that's where we are.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's one of the ways that I've gotten to know you is through Ask Nicely and, and it's you know the heart of delap to create a premium client experience to learn where where we can get better you know we've done a lot of things right but there's always room for growth and and so we partnered with ask nicely to to explore what those opportunities were but could you take a few minutes to kind of chat through what ask nicely is
1: is attempting to do sure if i can uh, even take one step back and kind of tell our origin story so we were originally founded in Auckland New Zealand in a backyard garden shed, and to uh, use the words of our founders from two crazy Kiwis who were really keen on disrupting the way customer feedback was done. Because at the time, customer feedback, if you did it, it, it wasn't nice. It was long form, incredibly boring, hard surveys that were in some cases valuable to the company who got the feedback, but they certainly weren't very fun to experience as a customer. And they were typically you know, very, far apart. So infrequent, maybe once a quarter, once a year, every half year, where it ultimately will then end up as a board level conversation or to use one of our, our CEO's uh, famous phrases, board members will get strokey beardy looking at a number on a screen say, that's really interesting. It went up, you know, eight points since last year, or down four. Glad we know that. We don't know what to do about it. So, but we feel good. We check the box. We have a report somewhere. And so as nicely set about to make the experience, you know, much nicer, quicker, easier, more fun for the constituent base, giving that feedback, but then ultimately to make it much more tangible, actionable on an ongoing basis so that companies can not simply just know what their customers think, but actually respond to it and improve it over time. And what we have come to find out is that those organizations that do actually use feedback to improve improve on the individual one-to-one customer level, as well as improve their service standard and the way that they deliver it, that there's significant revenue growth opportunity. And that's really what this is about. It's about growing the quality of the customer experience, which then grows your revenue results, which then allows you to invest in your people, invest in your customers and margin improve. So it's just really good uh, virtuous circle.
0: Casey, I think one of the things that's important is to take a purposeful pause if words matter and their definitions matter to really define what it is we're we're talking about often when when the conversation around the client experience comes up or customer engagement comes up sometimes it becomes somewhat synonymous with customer service or customer satisfaction so it's it's different right and i believe the origin of kind of the net promoter score goes back to is it bain and company that's correct yeah and so I think you were the one that turned me on to the book, The Ultimate Question, mm-hmm. and some of the research that that surrounds that. So I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot too much in terms of a book report from a book you read a couple of <laughs> years ago. Yeah, sure. But maybe take a minute to really delineate what, when we say customer experience right. or customer engagement, what does that mean?
1: I, I'm not going to uh, purport to be able to have a... a perfectly orthodox interpretation of the founders vision. But what I would say is, and, and the founder here is uh, maybe founder is not the right word, the creator of this ultimate question, the ultimate question being the net promoter system. And it's a gentleman named Fred Reicheld from Bain Company about 20 years ago, created this system, which he believes solved the problem of the fact that previous approaches around customer service, previous measures to determine how successful an organization was in providing that service was not an effective indicator of future growth or future success. And what he found was that you might have a very positive experience with the person who served you. Maybe, you know, in the technology world it might be a help desk ticket or in the retail product world, it's the interaction with with the clerk or, you know, somebody on a support team. And and that might be positive. They they got your, you know, the issue solved. However, it's not they found that statistically it was an ineffective correlation or predictor of loyalty, advocacy, and future growth. And so, and the other part of it is, and this is uh, certainly relevant for Delap and and its customers, is that your financial statements might look really healthy, you know, good revenue, good margin, good profit. But it does not mean that you are poised for successful long-term growth. In the Ultimate Question book, Fred Reichel, the author, he talks a lot about what we call bad profits. And if any of us are a customer of Comcast, we probably can uh, relate to what that means. You know, surprise price increases. You know, low. You know, attempts to reduce the cost center in you know in call centers. You know, long hold times. Both of those can increase your top line and bottom line, but they ultimately will reduce your customer loyalty over time, and so future growth and uh, uh, retention can be severely challenged. So he said about to figure out what is a better way of measuring retention and loyalty, particularly loyalty and, and future growth. And it was this simple question. The ultimate question is Jared, on a scale of zero to ten, how likely are you to recommend the uh Dilap Success podcast? <laughs> if I got the name right. Yeah, you did. Yeah, maybe I'll put you on the spot. You know what's your
0: what's your number? I recommend it to anyone. Yeah, kind of a narcissist like that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's good. So you I again mean, hey, I'm recommending this one. This one's gonna be our best. Oh, well well, it's not over yet, <laughs> but you didn't answer my question. On a zero to ten, we'll go with a nine. Okay, it's a nine. So on the zero to ten, you know, simple numeric measure here, it then allows you to segment and bucket your customers from what are called your promoters, the folks that are very likely to stick with you and to refer you to their network, your neutrals, and so your promoters, are your nines and tens, your neutral or to call passive folks that are. They'll, they'll hang out but if there's other options they might consider it they are ripe for you know being stolen by your your competition those are your yeah. seven and eights and then your zeros and six are your detractors these are people who you are currently customers but they're ticked and they may not continue to do business with you and they're folks that you uh, you certainly need to resolve their situation or they're likely to move so we now can understand our customers from a l- likeliness to turn and to promote us or not by way of these segments and then ultimately, in terms of the number, when people ca- talk about their net promoter score, it is the percent of their customers who are promoters minus the percent of their customers who are the detractors, giving your, your net, your net of promoter. And so if all of your customers hate you, you are a minus 100. If all of them love you, you know, supremely, then you are 100. So it's a range of minus 100 to 100. And you know really good is typically in the 70s, to 80s. You know, that's Apple, Telecom and the Airlines, they're kind of in the teens and twenties. And and so that gives you a score. Score does not cause your company to, to grow, but it gives you a measure to, you know, see how you can impact it, which uh which is then correlative to growth.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Casey, I've kind of come to think of the NPS a little bit. Correct me if I'm wrong, more as a leading indicator, right? So if there's different right. types of indicators, there's windshield indicators and there's rear view mirror indicators. And the ones that translate to the rear view mirror, sales, operating expenses, That's right. profitability, cash flows, those are all rear view mirror. But how do we detect whether things are getting better or staying the same or getting worse? And NPS offers us one lens to look at those things. And what Bain's research was, I thought, super interesting is its connectedness with so many of the the goals that a business would have, pricing integrity, the ability to expand client relationships, close rates—like all of those things—were correlated with with a high NPS score. So it's a, it's a shockingly simple question that's connected to a lot of the outcomes that we're all focused on, but offers us maybe a, a perspective
1: look into getting better, staying the same, or getting worse. Yeah, that's right. It's a very simple starting question, but as an open framework, it allows organizations to innovate upon it. And so simply getting a score is not going to do a whole lot. But as you understand, what can I do to improve it? And to see it improve, then that is a determined to be a premier indicator or predictor of future results and future growth. And what we see as the best practice is not simply just to get a score, but to understand what's the causation behind it. And so you know, most organizations have some kind of service standard or values that they, they espouse. And you'll find it on every marketing site. And hopefully in all the training programs, and then ideally into the coaching. And so coaching being, how can we use the voice of the customer to tell us how are we doing on those things that we have really committed in terms of our service standard. And when we hit the mark, we can recognize it and coach it and praise it. When we miss the mark, we can learn from it and and coach our folks so that ultimately, we're not simply just predicting the future, but we're improving the service that we deliver tomorrow, next week, and next month. And for those that think of this, and obviously this this is a strategy around customer experience, but for those really thinking really on top line, bottom line, London School of Economics determined that for every seven points of the net promoter score increase, there is on average an increase of 1% revenue. So remember that we can go from minus 100 to 100 on the scale. So for every seven points that so we go up, on average, 1% revenue increase. So it can really pay off. And we've seen that to, to be true with our customers as well.
0: So yeah, it's very, it's cool to see how predictive it can be. And it gets us really laser focused on what matters most, you know, the the client's voice, they're the boss, right? So, you know, what's also interesting is, Maybe how the influence of the customer has been democratized a little bit, right? Where, you know, you could bully a customer 20 years ago and, and maybe get away with it, you know, because their ability to share that experience was limited. And now that everyone's got, you know, the capacity to capture something in a digital experience and then share it, right? Whether it's a video, you know, we've all seen those videos go viral of like the the airlines. You know, it breaks guitars. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Millions of views. Yeah. Yeah. Like a level, the types of impressions that you don't want and the viral nature of it, right? Because it just can go so fast. And so, you know, when a business is really small, the owner has the opportunity because he or she's fingerprints are everywhere, right? But as an organization grows and scales, it becomes something that you have to kind of culturally imprint in order to make it repeatable and scalable. So if I'm encouraged by the truth that you just shared, kind of the London School of Business, that our seven points of NPS equals 1% of revenue, I love that because you're really just leaning into how do we delight our clients? How do we surprise and delight them a little bit more? Growing that way is a lot more fun, right? Totally, that's right. So if that's the case, walk me through a scenario. Just let's kind of skeleton a hypothetical where... We use a, a simple model of now where how what's true now where's our NPS now and if let's say we want it to be seven percent higher how we get there is going to be a byproduct of those two points where are we now and where are we trying to go. Obviously, it's not one recipe for for everyone. But walk me through. I think that's kind of one of the secret sauces of of Ask nicely and its team is like helping people actually extract actionable insight from some of these patterns, like some pattern recognition and maybe prioritization. So well, I guess, how does a business drive NPS in customer
1: engagement? Certainly. Let's put a quick pin on this. Before I forget, I want to go back to what you talked about who controls the message. I think there's a a few important things to discuss there in terms of is now been democratized. Um, otherwise, if I, if I don't, I'll forget. We'll come back to your question okay. about uh, how to improve it. So I think there's a couple of things that are really important. One, the fact that we do know that the brands, the companies no longer own the message, they don't control the message. They can simply be a servant to it. And, you know, steward it really to steward the customer experience to hopefully, you know, improve the, the quality of the message that that will have will be had, whether you like it or not. And and so there's really two aspects of it, or maybe three, I'd say one is to ensure, knowing that that is true, that you are more consistently delivering that great experience. And so You are going to amplify the positive and hopefully reduce the negative, but you can't control it. So it's, it's the onus of the company and the brand to ensure that experience is hitting the mark. Secondly, is since most people will, you know, these days, actually, let me, uh, let me throw a stat. I'm in the sales profession and we have a stat that we've talked about for the last, you know, five, 10 years or so that. The buying process is often 70% done before the first interaction with sales. In the past, it used to be you think you have a problem, you want to go find a solution for it, you open the phone book, and your first interaction is with sales. Now you're going out to the world to find out what is the reputation of various partners and, and solution providers before we even get down that track. And so it's incredibly important to, one, provide that great experience so that people who are talking out there are are talking positively and on the consumer side b2c that's going to be typically online reviews where it's not simply that you want great reviews but you can help amplify it so a good feedback solution or experience solution could help you identify those really happy customers and direct them to those review sites so that you can increase the quantity and quality but then the uh, the flip side of it is it's really important to be able to leverage the voice of the customer to identify Your frustrated customers, because people want to be heard, they want to be understood, and if you don't provide them that option, then they're going to go out to the world and and shout it out. But what we found is if we can identify it quickly, and early, then often we can reduce the likelihood of somebody going out to social to post it. We can reach out to that customer through what we call closing the loop, reaching out, getting feedback, receiving the feedback, and then closing the loop back to that back to that customer, and. The cool thing about it is it's not simply you're just reducing the amount of negative sentiment out online, but often your most loyal advocates and you know, fierce promoters of you and your business will be people who were previously ticked off because they saw you listen, you care, you respond to them. And they will often become, like I said, some of your most uh, active advocates. So it's a great opportunity to you know, both improve the way people think about you, the way that translates online, and then ultimately to improve the customer experience, so that they're uh, they're going to do more of your marketing for you, which is uh, how people consider what to buy these days. What the what the customers say, not what you say.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think as people have determined that the feedback has been democratized, it's really empowered people to go buy things that way, knowing right. that the commercial is the commercial, and it's there's maybe a disconnect between who you say you are and what your product does and, and the reality. Yep. So I, th- I think we've all probably had those experiences where you go from being the prospect and that's one experience to the customer and that's a different experience and that's crummy. That's
1: right. Yeah. So on the consumer side, kind of low margin, low ticket size type of products or services, it's usually all in reviews In B2B world and higher ticket items. It's uh, it's usually r- around referrals so yeah. ensuring that, you know, when, when people uh people reach out to their network and they say, here's the challenge I'm trying to solve for, that they get that word of mouth advocacy because that that trust that they hear from their friend who they know is so much more powerful than any kind of branded marketing, which people are pretty skeptical about these days.
0: I heard an interesting story the other day. I was reading, I was trying to study a little bit about after action reviews, AARs. It's a term kind of a feedback behavior within the military. Okay. So after a mission or a practice mission, you perpetually debrief what went right, what went wrong, you know, how do we get better? So you kind of, it systematizes a feedback process. And in that process of trying to understand how feedback worked, I stumbled into a story about uh, Jack Nicklaus, the golfer.
1: Wasn't he called the great white shark or something like that?
0: golden bear the golden okay bear. wrong analogy way off the great white <laughs> that was uh, greg norman greg norman oh okay thank you okay i was like wait Makes me feel are, slightly better yeah where is he going with that who knows yeah so the golden bear jack nicholas yeah yeah he has the most majors in professional golf history right which is would be one stake at the i'm the best golfer ever argument What people observed is when he got done with a round, sometimes he putted and sometimes he didn't. And so when they were seeking to understand when he putted, he didn't putt after a bad performance. He putted after a good performance. And the reason
1: he did that was
0: for imprinting. He wanted to imprint the stroke that worked versus jumping on the green when he just didn't have a good feel. And so, you know, when you're talking about what does it take to be world-class, yep. He realized when it feels right, I need to make that the muscle memory versus wanting to address the problem immediately and having kind of that, you know, putting when it didn't feel right and creating muscle memory around that. Sometimes you'll hear golf instructors or when you're playing baseball or whatever those, you know, that practicing when you're fatigued isn't always the right thing to do because you create some bad habits. So in that spirit, let's frame it that way about positive imprinting. Yes. Yes. What does that feedback look like in an organization that's mastered NPS? Like all of a sudden it's like a pattern around like, wow, this product, this team, this service, this experience, like all of a sudden we have some pattern recognition around some some promoters. Sure. We identify it's correlated with X. How does one systematize that positive imprinting process?
1: I, I think that's a brilliant analogy. And we're huge believers in that. You can use it. Yeah, I, I love it. I actually love it a lot. And I'm going to uh, slightly rewind, give another sports analogy, and then I'll get right on point in terms of the positive imprinting. The other country club sport, tennis. We'll go from golf to tennis here. Imagine, and I, I played a high school tennis, loved it. A late discovery that this was a sport I actually liked. But imagine you played a match and you were never given the score for any of the, any of the plays or whatever they're called. You didn't have the game score, the match score until the match was over. You have no idea of how to calibrate, to know if you're winning. What do I need to work on? Where's, where's the gap between me and winning? And that is the way most businesses operate when it comes to feedback, is if they do it at all, it's you know every quarter, half yearly, however, kind of the old way of doing it. But to win, we need to be able to really understand where are we today? So we're getting that positive feedback from every customer interaction. In the B two C world, this is pretty common, and the B two B not necessarily as much, in terms of every customer interaction. But the positive imprinting needs to happen on a daily basis into the hearts and minds of the people who are serving your customers. So, when we think about what really creates loyalty, and when people say had an incredible experience, it's really important to to remember that it's really you know at the end of the day we're all human and we want to be you know understood appreciated taken care of and technology has really changed the way people consider experience but technology just makes things more efficient to deliver an outcome an outcome doesn't really knock people's socks off if it's pretty much exactly what they expected you to deliver in the first place and so loyalty comes through positive emotional connections through people through surprising delighting people and the way that your staff, your frontline staff who are interacting with your customers and your clients. The way they treat your customers ultimately. So, positive imprinting what has been done too much for too long in the customer experience world is getting feedback of here's what you did wrong, here's what you need to work on and, you know, a little bit of shame on you and, you know, here's your where you're missing the mark. Often when feedback was was essentially you know, collected in the folks in the back office, you know, did the pivot tables and the spreadsheets and they ultimately, you know, extended out to the managers and out to the the teams, here's where we messed up. That's uh, the opposite of that positive imprinting. And so what we have found is that if you want a great customer experience, you need to have a great employee experience. People thrive in cultures of appreciation. And so one of the, the superpowers of customer feedback is to, Take this ongoing flow of the positive things that they're saying about your specific key standards, your service standards, and really reinforce that with each frontline staff. Um, We do that through technology, both direct from the customer to our frontline staff, as well as targeted efficiency in coaching capabilities for managers to more specifically say, okay, Jared has done a phenomenal job around these number of areas. Here's one area to work on. And so it can be really reinforcing the positive and getting more specific. Let me tell you an example of how this was originally done, originally done very poorly. One of the best organizations in the world to have scaled customer experience is Uber. They're not a transportation company. Taxis were very sufficiently getting people from point A to point B. And obviously they have uh, raised the game in terms of convenience and efficiency, but they have 4 million contract drivers who never get employee management reviews, quarterly business reviews, or one-on-ones with a boss, but they typically consistently deliver a great experience. So how do they do that? They take the voice of the customer, you know, and we all recall it. For me, it's been a while since I've been in Uber. I don't know about you, about you, Jared, but, uh, you know, back in the day, we used to ride Ubers and that uh, all the time. Yeah. And, and what happens the moment you get out of the car, you get a five star survey that pops up straight out of the app every single time. You know, rate the experience today with the driver one to five stars, and you know, is there a particular area that it was good or um, good or bad? That feedback now has the opportunity to go straight to the driver in real time. We got to speak with the program manager in the United Kingdom who originally rolled this out for hundreds of thousands of drivers in Europe, and when they originally rolled out this app, nobody would open it. Nobody would look at it. Any guess as to why? The Uber app? Uh-huh. The driver app, the essentially the driver personal scorecard. Nobody would look at it. I have no they idea. they did something wrong. Fascinating. Because all they did was, here's the things you did wrong. Here's what your customers didn't like. And no one wanted to look at that. They came across a Harvard Business Review article that said, when you want to change behavior, you need to emphasize the positive. And they have dialed it down to a six to one ratio six things that you're doing incredibly well to one thing you need to work on. So they switched, switched the ratio and adoption went through the charts. Not only are their employees happier because they have a sense of a job well done and a sense of more purpose in their job, but they stick around longer because you know people typically move jobs not just for the pay, but for, I mean, am I enjoying this? Is it fulfilling? But then those happier employees who knew what their customers loved were a lot more intelligent to then deliver that great experience next time. And so that's really how you can take feedback to go from a metric to understanding some themes, you know, because it's uh, experiences delivered by people who are on the front line, not by analysts in the back office, to then use it for coaching and inspiration and motivation for your frontline folks. Now we're really kicking into the, uh, to the process where an improvement to the experience next time and next week as measured by Net Promoter Score is going to start to bring happier customers who come back more often and tell their friends, now your revenue is going up.
0: Yeah. I think I had about like six or seven thoughts or ideas. So some of them are already gone. But (laughs) yeah, so much good stuff there, Casey. A couple of things I I just want to highlight just so that our audience doesn't miss out on some of the wisdom. You talked about the feedback ratio, right? It was six to one. That's right. And when we think about our own experiences, Just in life, right? Like how often are we affirmed six times for every time we're critiqued? Yeah. I stumbled into a thought one time where it's our our blessings whisper, but our problems shout. You know, it's like there's it's so easy to get up and not inventory what's going well. Tim Keller uh will talk about like when do you feel your elbow? Like when was the last time you thought about your elbow? For most of us, unless we had some sort of an elbow issue, we never think about it, right? Sure, sure. And so the only time you think about it is when it's when it's wrong. And I think you know, there's a negativity bias that we all have, right? So if things are going well, it's just easy to ignore. And so as a leader, as an owner, I think creating rhythms or reminders to make sure that you're culturally and organizationally getting closer to that six to one ratio of affirmation versus coaching. As a leader myself, that always struggled with negative feedback. I don't really want to do it. I just would much prefer to like, you know, celebrate the wins and I've been going through this uh, admired leadership program and it's learning the behaviors of the best leaders. So it's kind of a lot, it's really research oriented and it's been a great coaching program. But one of the techniques that they taught was kind of a feed forward. So rather than providing feedback on something that's already occurred because the tendency is then to interrogate the feedback, you know, people demand more details and want to drill down and then about what about. Well, it's sure. like, that's not really the point. We're not trying right. to, to forensically uncover. It's like, where are we trying to go? And so this pattern of, of going more towards feed forward, Hey, the, as we go into these scenarios, I'd like to see more of this or less of that. That's right. You know, more than, less than, and that's a great way to frame it. And so for me, that's been a much easier, more comfortable way to provide some of the coaching points that are more awkward or challenging sometimes to deliver.
1: That's right. And we have a, a bit of an, an aggressive and kind of strong point of view here, here it asked nicely, against the more data, more analytics, you know, just more you know, diving into the qualitative aspects or the quantitative aspects. And those things are important. But this is not about just getting more feedback to more people. And in fact, it's even not even about feedback, it's just the how. It's about behavior change. If we want to increase the measure of net promoter, we need to change the way our customer facing employees think and feel about that interaction. And so when I say six to one, it's not like we magically get six positive points of customer feedback for everyone negative. It's what do we do with it so that we can most effectively change behavior. So this is much more about coaching and inspiration to continue the, the jobs well done. And in particular, minute areas of, of particular improvement points on a daily basis, as opposed to just, you know, give me more data. Big data was exciting for a lot of venture capitalists and this and that, but you know, <laughs> if you don't take any action on it and you actually change the way you you do things, then uh, then it's not that exciting. So it's really kind of taking Fitbit, call it Fitbit for uh, for customer facing teams. You know, Fitbit is not a heavy data app. It's you look at it and say, hey, what am I doing well? Great, let me continue that. Here's the area to work on.
0: Yeah, it's it's fascinating how engagement can work, right? The gamification and, and engagement that it can create. We talked about some companies here. Along the way that grew really quickly with very little to no little to no advertising, just basically optimizing client experience and grew. So you, you'd referenced Uber. Sure. One of the genres of books that I've really enjoyed reading are, are some of these nonfiction books about you know startups. So it, with hatching Twitter or su- the book Super Pumped talking about Uber or the billion dollar loser talking about We Work. Most recently, a book called the Airbnb story. You know, I was curious, like we had a couple of planning opportunities for clients related to Airbnb IPO, and I realized I didn't know their origin story. And I think Airbnb, as I was reading the book, they really have never advertised. It was really about uh, creating an incredible experience. Sure. And so one of the books that the founders read early in their their launch was a book called Peak by Chip Conley. Okay. And he was a, a hoteler, like boutique hoteler that had really leaned into the client experience so I was like, well, that's interesting. So I picked up his book and what he did to describe client experience was he borrowed Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, and so Abraham Maslow, I think in 1948 came out with this paper that we've all probably been exposed to the hierarchy of needs that starts with psychological safety, social belonging, esteem, and then ultimately self-actualization until you've met all of your psychological needs. You can't really work into your safety, Right. So he was talking about engagement with employees, that like the base level is money. A second level is recognition. The third level is meaning, right? And then he talked about the customer pyramid, right? If you meet expectations, that creates satisfaction. If you meet desires, that creates commitment. But ultimately, the highest, highest form of client experiences meets unrecognized needs, and that creates evangelism. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, certainly for sure a student and not a teacher of anything having to do with client experience. But I do feel like it's kind of the new frontier when you look at how fast an Uber can grow or an Airbnb and how technology is disrupting the service model and the powers that are out there. Yeah. Just even look at the media. You can be an independent content creator and actually get more views than the mainstream media. So there's a democratization that's occurring. And I think those that can win in the client experience realm are
1: positioned well to continue to win going forward. But I think there's a couple interesting things happening in, in terms of you know, digital transformation and how we experience, how we interact with some of these big brands. So going, going back to you know, Uber, and if we want to throw Apple and Amazon and Airbnb into the mix, I wouldn't suspect that anybody listening to this podcast today is competing directly with Uber that they're in a business that competes directly with Uber or, or Apple or Amazon. But the reality is that we, we now all are because our customers, the way they think, the experiences that they want, they don't necessarily compare us to our direct competitor. They compare us to what they've come to see as common and enjoyable with just the way you can interact with some of these big brands. You know, so much of our life these days, in terms of how we uh, we buy things has has been really affected by these bigger brands, and so that's why it, it's you might think well, experience maybe isn't necessarily like the the key competitive differentiation in my category, but your customers would probably disagree that they're more and more so looking for the quality of experience. Is it enjoyable? Is it easy? But the flip side of this, which I think it gives all of us a really great opportunity, is. As the world increasingly digitizes the way we interact, people are going to become more and more hungry for personal interaction, for relationship, for being known, for being understood. And so I think uh, technology is great for efficiency. It's not great for loyalty. And so I think we all have an opportunity to think about how can we deliver great outcomes efficiently for our customers. But that's really the table stick because customers aren't going to be surprised and amazed if we do the things that they expected and that they paid us for. But when we can really, you know, engage them on a more human level and, and make the experience enjoyable, then it's fun for everybody. Happy employees, happy customers, good profits, repeat the virtuous circle.
0: Casey, if you were holding a microphone, this is when you would, you would have dropped it. That I thought was... <laughs> that's <laughs> your mic, mic drop. Did I my, drop my AirPods? You yeah. dropped those, yeah. That, that, that's <laughs> less dramatic less dramatic, especially when our audience can't see you. But I want you to say that again in you, because that might be the walk away moment. Okay. Is talk to me about table stakes, doing what you said you were going to do is table stakes. I 100% right. agree with you. But I think it's so easy to not understand the implications of that.
1: Yeah. So how much does that do you want me to paraphrase? We we'll <laughs> probably have about five minutes. All right, all right. That's your shot clock. Yeah. So, let me rewind it and, and paraphrase it again. Your your customers are not thinking about you in terms of your direct competition. It's about what they have come to see as normal and enjoyable in terms of the way they interact with their vendors and partners out there. And so, really so okay, on so just
0: for example, just, sorry, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, like, sure. If all of a sudden I have this random thought come to my head that I want something, yeah. I can look at my phone and the phone unlocks based upon my facial recognition. I sure. open the Amazon app, I type in what I think I want and I hit buy now and a day or two later, it's on the doorstep. So it's from idea to executed, it was three or four keystrokes. I mean, that's what you're talking about that I expect when I do my mortgage, which is the exact opposite, that I want it to be like that. And so what I used to tolerate previously, I now have a new norm. And so that mortgage application process is infinitely more frustrating today than it would have yeah, been. Exactly.
1: exactly. On the personal side, I am looking to sell our house. And in the winter, some rabbits in the backyard and some branches coming down have not been good to my yard. And so I need to improve my yard so it looks good so I can sell it. So normally I'm kind of a DIY guy, but I said, you know what? I don't really have a whole lot of time. I'm going to hire out to a firm to help me with my yard. Help with fertilizer and seed, and you know, aerating and that kind of thing. And so I signed on with, i believe it's True Green. They do the things I just said: fertilizer, seed, aerating. You know, pretty green collar, normal stuff. Uh, if green collar is the right term. But my <laughs> experience with them has been: I got a text say, "Click here. Here's a good time. I want." They reconfirmed it two days later. I got another text saying, "We are on our way." You know, they had a nice printout of the work that they did on a door hanger when they left, you know, 30 seconds after the truck drove off, got another text. Here's what we delivered and click here to leave a review. So the digital transformation and, and the ease of experience is more and more what we all expect. And that's a landscaping businesses. company. It's landscaping. That's right. I mean, so, <laughs> wow. So that's just kind of like the, uh, the big picture theme. In terms of how we need to consider what our customers are expecting, because the, we're being programmed by these big brands that we interact with. That sounds pretty dangerous, actually, being programmed. But I think the real takeaway is our desire to, to have connection, to be known, to be appreciated, to be understood is not going away. And that's going to, the, the gap is only going to increase as the world becomes a little bit more remote, especially these days, a little bit more digital. And so, the technology, again, is just going to make it more efficient for you to deliver the outcome that you said that you're going to do. And, and if we all can think about the brands we love, not just like, but we love, it's not because they gave us what we paid them for. It's because they did something somewhere along the line where we connected with a human being and that interaction surprised us and delighted us. And that creates an incredible opportunity for so many businesses because so many businesses are being kind of led around the idea of, you know, digital, digital transformation efficiency, reduce cost to operate, which then makes the the smart folks out there say, you know what, I got an incredible opportunity to compete and win on the basis of experience, which ultimately will create that loyalty because it's that connection, human connection and emotional connection where the loyalty comes from. Again, not from simply just getting what you paid for. So I feel like I just said the same thing twice. So you you rate me how in the zero to 10, how was my paraphrase?
0: I'm a nine to 10 in yeah, terms of strongly generous.
1: recommending it to a friend or family member. All right. I'm a promoter. I'm a promoter. of, And tell us why what's the main reason for your score
0: confirmation bias. I agree with you. All right. <laughs> no, but that's I fair. think there's, I think there's so much it allows us to align our client or customer transaction with our relationships, right? So there's relational alignment, transactional alignment that allows us to, deliver engagement and impact which is ultimately our professional legacy and so it's an awesome area with infinite upside you know it's an area that you could probably never be good enough at you know and, and and is a worthy pursuit because i think all of us want to know that our jobs matter and that our organizations matter and that we leave our our customers or clients better than we found them that's and, right and uh, i think nps is a is a wonderful way kind of the ultimate question to align you know, our individual purpose and meaning with kind of the organizational purpose and meaning. And so I appreciate you, Casey, taking some time to to share some of those experiences, what you've learned and some of the the insights that this great, huge, big concept of customer client experience entails. My
1: pleasure. If I could uh, share one last parting word, uh, I would say this is not just about a strategy, not definitely not about a measure or the tactics to, uh, to try to improve it. It's what you said, Jared, is ultimately, are we, are we living with, and my paraphrase on it is, are we living with integrity? Are we operating with integrity? Not just honest and ethical, which we all should, but are we actually living out the mission that we committed to in the boardroom, in the founding epiphany, in what we really deeply care about? If you could uh, see me on the video here, I'm wearing a, a hat that says Shine, which is uh, one of the companies I have the opportunity to work with. Their mission is to make a brighter world, to bring light to their community. They're very missionally oriented, incredibly values-driven organization. They happen to wash windows and they make tens of millions of dollars a year doing it across the country with many locations that they operate. So when I speak with them, we do care about you know the metrics and profitability and they've discovered that their revenue is going way up well, using you know, really focusing on customer experience. But at the end of the day, it's we know we care deeply about it, and this just helps us align to it and ensure that we actually are living out our commitments. We're living out what we really care about and what is important to us. Casey Corgan, thank you so much. My pleasure. Good to see you, Jared.